This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. From now until January 2nd, all Verso Books are 40% off as part of their end-of-the-year sale. Pick up gifts for yourself or your loved ones, including Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Abolish the Family, A Manifesto for Care and Liberation by Sophie Lewis, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing by Sharice Burden-Stelly and Jody Dean, and Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It by Nancy Fraser. Again, from now until January 2nd, all Verso books are 40% off as part of their end-of-the-year sale. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Nothing so defines American society, politics, and economy like housing. It is an asset unlike any other, an unrivaled motor of the real and financial economy around which racialized wealth, power, status, and security orbit. It powers the system at the highest level and commands allegiance to it from below. What we have is a two-tier housing system, with a dominant private market organized around private homeownership, overwhelming a much smaller and heavily stigmatized, underfunded, and, in recent decades, increasingly privatized public housing system reserved for only the very poorest. This episode is my interview with Gail Radford on her 1996 book, Modern Housing for America, Policy Struggles in the New Deal Era, which in recent years, has been rediscovered and treasured by a new generation of housing and tenant organizers. Radford tells the story of Catherine Bauer, the Labor Housing Conference, and the New Deal-era struggle to make the American housing system a radically social one. In place of the two-tier system that won out, Bauer and her allies proposed a massive, federally-backed system of non-commercial housing that would appeal to and house the majority of Americans in beautiful homes and vibrant, socially connected communities that would deprivatize everyday people's everyday lives, social reproductive activities, and consciousnesses. Under FDR's Interior Secretary, Harold Ickes, the Housing Division of the Public Works Administration provided an opportunity to develop projects that endeavored to do just that. From the Hosiery Workers Union-backed Mackley Houses in Philadelphia to the Harlem River Houses in New York. But the Housing Division was temporary and had limited funding, and the New Deal had other housing programs, like the Federal Housing Administration, geared toward resuscitating the private sector single-family home market. They proved far more powerful. And by the late 1930s, they had revived the private real estate market and, along with it, the sector's political power. And so industry alongside a broader, growing conservative reaction against the New Deal, defeated social housing proposals and ensured that the Housing Act of 1937 would reserve public housing for the very poorest and sharply limit how much money could be spent on its construction and maintenance. Indeed, we almost ended up with no public housing at all. 
The private real estate market, supported by massive but largely invisible public subsidies, came to dominate the American system. The prevailing order subsidized massive and segregated suburbanization and private homeownership on the one hand, while, on the other, relegating poor people, particularly black poor people, to an underfunded and demeaned public housing system. That public housing system, nonetheless, provided essential and often decent homes for millions of poor Americans. But that system, as I'll discuss in next week's episode with historian Edward Goetz, has been since the 1970s privatized and since the 1980s dismantled. President Roosevelt had hoped that his housing policies would lay the material groundwork for a permanent majority. Instead, it did the opposite, leading millions of Americans to imagine themselves self-made lords of their own miniature estates, oblivious to the government subsidies that underpinned it all, and so contemptuous of what they deemed unjustified taxpayer handouts to the non-productive poor. Instead of a permanent majority, the mass federal subsidization of private homeownership laid the material basis for a reaction against public housing in particular, but also, more generally, against the entire New Deal order. Recently, that two-tier American housing system has entered into a deepening crisis. In the absence of a welfare state, the single-family home had been Americans' best bet at an inflating asset that could provide for your retirement and for the creation of intergenerational wealth, particularly amid decades of stagnant or declining wages. Yet, the better that this homeownership-based welfare system performed for the majority of American households that own their homes, the more impossible it got for the roughly third who rent to break into the system and buy a home. Those exclusions have always been organized around racism and class. Increasingly, however, that divide is also generational, with many millennials and Zoomers who are not poor unable to purchase incredibly expensive homes and beginning to imagine that they may never be able to do so. The housing crisis is today exemplary of a broader social, economic, and political crisis in the United States, felt by everyone from the hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless to the poor people with no exit option from profiteering slumlords, unwilling to make basic repairs, to the downwardly mobile, college-educated children of the middle class struggling to make rent, people for whom the American dream of homeownership has been foreclosed. Because the private sector is so clearly unable to solve a problem that's hitting such a broad and growing swath of Americans, the ideas that Radford recounts in her book are resurfacing and getting a second look. Here in Rhode Island, the stories Radford tells have helped inspire me to do the organizing that I'm doing to create a statewide public housing developer to build mixed-income housing that will house both poor and working-class people and appeal to the majority, and in doing so, drive down rents across the board by putting a decommodified public sector into the competition. That's something that I plan to discuss more in future episodes. I'm dedicating most of my organizing life to housing, so you can expect to hear a lot more about housing here on this podcast. Before we get rolling, you should know that the only reason I can work on this podcast full-time and still have the time to do all this organizing work is because listeners like you support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. That's the social contract that's in effect here. 
Unlike other podcasts, we put out every episode with no paywall, free for everyone to listen, regardless of your ability to pay. But that's only because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. We then sweeten the deal further by sending you our weekly newsletter by email for a contribution of any amount. A contribution of $10 or more a month gets you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or dig mug. Please take a quick moment to contribute what feels right if you are amongst those listeners who can indeed afford to contribute. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, if you want to check out the newsletter, they are all available for free at thedigradio.com, along with the entirety of our vast archives. Okay, here's Gail Radford, a professor of history emerita at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and the author of two books, Modern Housing for America, Policy Struggles in the New Deal Era, and The Rise of the Public Authority, State Building and Economic Development in 20th Century America. Gail Radford, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. You write, quote, Conventional wisdom suggests that Americans would never have abandoned their cherished dream of owning their home, preferably a freestanding, single-family house in the suburbs. Yet, some scholars have argued that this seemingly transhistorical commitment to homeownership in the United States was considerably strengthened, if not actually created in its present form during the interwar period. In fact, Americans were never given such a choice, so it is impossible to tell how they would have reacted. Your book and this interview are above all else about that fork in the road, that that moment when the dream of a more socially oriented American housing system lost out to the system that we have today, or maybe better put, the system that we had until the public housing began to be dismantled under Bill Clinton. But anyhow, the system that was created instead is one that revolves around private homeownership and that reserves cheaply constructed public housing only for the very poorest. But before we get to that historical juncture, what did this attachment to private homeownership as core to being an American, what did that look like in the decades leading up to the Depression? Did it have roots in these long-standing notions of of private land ownership as the basis of free citizenship, Idiot, the sort of ideologies that that were reinforced by the mythos surrounding this country's expanding frontier? I've always been a, a little bit skeptical of this idea that home ownership was just so important and kind of innate in Americans. Before the 1930s, people tend to think of the big industrial cities, big economically vibrant cities, as places that the poor lived. Maybe they have some kind of hazy idea that they were in tenements, but of course they, they weren't, uh, except in New York City. Families built small wood frame houses for themselves. Uh, when they could, they bought these, but they also constructed them themselves. They had no services in many cases, no indoor plumbing. But they did, when people were able to purchase, they did 
provide a kind of security that we never have as 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 renters. I've, I'm struck by how Americans uh, have imagined that there's this deep connection with home ownership as part of as part of our basic identity. I'm struck by the fact that elites have done a lot, political elites, um, economic players have done a lot to promote this conception. I mean, there were efforts to, during the 1920s, to showcase houses, to, to introduce Americans to more appliances and so forth by these kind of show houses that people were, that industry would, would subsidize and move around the country to, to get people to be more oriented toward, toward buying their own house and furnishing it and so forth. And then, you know, people in the housing industry, I mean, they, they're very good at propagandizing the idea that houses owned homes are wonderful. And, you know, if if this was something that was just that they could expect that people would would um, believe in the first place, I, you know, it seems hard to think that they would bother. So uh, to some extent, I think we've been propagandized uh, by this idea. And the other thing, the other the other aspect of it is the the non ideological, is that until the nineteen twenties there were no um, alternatives for you as a small player, a, sm- a small business, even a small businessman for investment besides real estate. And so once there were by the nineteen twenties there start being maybe with the Liberty Bonds uh, that were sold during World War I was, was w- one of the big m- moments when the, the, a change start, starts taking place. But once that happened, that coincides with a lot of this kind of propaganda about being a true American, that, that owning your own home was a, was a sign of being a true American. And I think that that that's had a lot of that had a lot of impact on, uh, especially immigrants, in terms of wanting to want, wanting to fit in to their to their new environment. But it also has to do with getting away from landlords. Landlords are terrible in general. They're, uh, and you know they're, it's you're living under a kind of arbitrary rule. That, that people in Europe don't face. You know, there's people in Europe oftentimes live their whole lives in apartments. They're rent controlled, but there's all, also rights that people have uh, that aren't even, we can't even imagine here, which give people protections and stability. And, and so this, this kind of lust for home ownership, I mean, maybe... Maybe it comes out of the frontier or the American ex- experiment or just sort of as a side effect of being a settler society. But 
the proposition that home ownership specifically is this kind of innate, powerful drive, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. That land speculation, <laughs> real estate, um, is, uh, that, that seems more, um, a better interpretive framework for me. Let's get into the historical narrative. Why in the first decades of the 20th century did the cost of housing begin to skyrocket? And and what were the consequences of that on the ground? And then how did the politicians, social workers, and policymakers of the progressive era, from the radical Edith Elmer Wood to more mainstream proponents of market solutions, how did they propose fixing the escalating crisis? So part of the problem was the increasing cost of, of materials. But another part was that savings that I had mentioned, mentioned earlier, there were now other places for people to, to save their money besides just putting it in to building a house that they might sell or rent to someone else. Real estate was not the only possibility for small savers. And that meant that a lot of the housing, by the time we get to the 1920s, was not this small-scale speculators, but rather larger development operations. Once... uh, this happens, these larger developers want a higher return on their investment. And so they build primarily for the top of the market. There was a tremendous amount of residential construction during the 1920s, but most of it was aimed at the top third of the market. And that that segment was satisfied by the time we get to the the middle of the decade. In fact, the amount of housing that was built, uh, the amount of housing starts that happened, hits its high point in, I think it was uh, 1926, and almost a million starts. After that, it starts, it starts going down. And this is one of the lead-ups to the Depression. People didn't notice it at the time. Housing, uh, along with cars, were the drivers of this very hot economy in the Roaring Twenties. But in fact, housing production was starting to get less profitable because the product that was being produced was, it wasn't affordable, um, even for uh, middle-income people. Housing was a very risky proposition, uh, in part because the, the way mortgages were organized at the time, you, you got a mortgage and but it only lasted for five or six years. You made monthly payments, but those monthly payments were only on the interest 
And so when the mortgage ended, uh, you, you owed the bulk of, uh, you still owed, owed the, the capital. And, <laughs> and so uh, the, uh, when times were good, uh, your lender would just turn over your loan and things would just start again and you'd be paying off interest. But as the 20s went on and then into the 1930s, lenders were not, they weren't interested in, in refinancing mortgages. And a lot, of, a lot of people were foreclosed on. During World War I, Congress for the first time authorized the federal government to directly construct housing for, for industrial workers in this case. How did the war remake the debate over government intervention in the housing market, given, given how intensely hostile business interests and prevailing ideologies had been to anything infringing upon the private sector and private home ownership in particular? In, you, you cite a quote from 1918 from Senator Albert Fall, who called federal housing programs, quote, an insidious, concerted effort to overturn the entire government of the United States. What were the politics surrounding the World War I program, and how much and what sort of housing was ultimately built? Yes. I'm thinking about how you mentioning Fall and his kind of hysterical-sounding condemnation of, of the federal housing efforts. It reminds me, uh, after the Second World War, the kind of McCarthyistic attack that happens on uh, public housing and how it's uh, going to lead to the end of the capitalist system and, and the end of the, the nation. But in the World War I um, housing experiments, people like Fall had a lot, a lot more reason to be upset and f- frightened by the, the government getting involved with housing because the kind of housing that was created in the programs that were, were set up for housing war workers were actually extremely appealing. They're still, many of them are still in existence today, and they were quite appealing. They were uh, a lot of, um, a lot of them were large neighborhoods that were planned by designers who were familiar with the latest theories of garden cities that had been popularized in, in Great Britain. But before, before I talk about the, the actual uh, housing that was built and the neighborhoods, let me just answer your question about why, what, what was the opening for these programs in the first place? And that had to do with the fact that the crowding and lack of any, any kind of facilities around a lot of the war plants was just incredible. I mean, the manufacturers couldn't get a workforce because there was no place for them to to live and so it i mean it was a a crisis situation 
in terms of running a, an industrial war. And that, that's what made it possible to um, set these plans in motion for um, shipbuilders and also war manufacturing of other kinds, especially, and these were places along the East Coast, but the, there, was, uh, some, there was some building on the West Coast too. When this happened, as I said, the design people that got hired to run the program were extremely talented. And these, these communities that they created were charming. Unfortunately, it, it just got shut down right at the, uh, immediately when the war ended and the government started selling, selling them off piecemeal to the highest bidder. There were efforts by residents to set up some kind of co-op arrangements and buy them as a group from from the government, but these couldn't get established fast enough. Um, and the whole thing just sort of ended abruptly. But a lot was built bef before it ended. And in fact, as I, I think I mentioned, People are still living in some of that housing today. Amazingly enough, that I'm not sure if you're a New York Times reader, but on, I think it's Sundays, they run a little feature having to do with what $500,000 or a million point two dollars will buy you in different parts of the country. And they usually have three different alternatives. And this one was, this article was uh, something like $700,000. <laughs> one of, uh, what, what, what you could get for them. And for goodness sakes, uh, one of these uh, was in one of these World War I uh, kind of English village <laughs> uh, developments. And so, I mean, that's just to say, these neighborhoods really did pose something of a of some kind of competition, a real competition, in a way, and they uh, partially because I mean the you know they were kind of row house development and so forth, but some of them were freestanding, but kind of cl group closer together, and then they had parks and community facilities integrated into the neighborhoods. So these, these really were extremely um, appealing alternatives. As you mentioned, these, this directly government-built housing program came to an end alongside the war, but the housing crisis continued. You write, quote, much of the debate in these years was not about whether or not government should be involved but how and for what purposes public authority should expand into this part of the economy. One notable effort at building non-commercial, government-backed non-commercial housing, if, if very much an outlier, was in socialist-led Milwaukee, which by 1923 had built 100 cooperatively owned and permanently affordable homes. But not very long after at all, by 1925, 
all of that housing had been privatized. What are the most important lessons to take from Milwaukee's experiment, both both in terms of why it came about and then why it failed? I think especially when one thinks about the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses of the public works administration complexes that I, I looked at that were created later. One of the issues in all of these situations was that, that the, the design for the whole experiment didn't come from the people who were going to live there. And the, the idea of, of setting up a cooperative, limiting the possible equity you could draw from it, within this larger context of housing becoming uh, an an investment for many families, for something that could uh, take the place of social democratic programs like pensions and uh, that would pay for people's retirement that as as logical as as it is to a to uh, an intellectual that we need to create housing that is not part of the market in order to keep costs affordable for the long run that isn't if people if if those opportunities are just created and people move in with the the mindset that they've been socialized into by our larger society, these things are, uh, they're, not, they're not sustainable. Um, it's thinking about uh, what happened with the Carl Mackley houses and the Harlem River houses that I, I looked at uh, later in my book, that I, that I look back on Mayor Daniel Hone and all of his wonderful socialist ideas and I think that that he and the people around him had terrific ideas but the rank and file uh, folks who who moved into that housing that you talked about they were looking for a nice house um, but they um, they hadn't bought into the whole the whole package to finish sort of setting, up the background to the main story that you tell. Let's talk a little bit about the end of the 1920s and the early 30s. President Herbert Hoover approached the housing crisis with the same, seemingly the same sort of efficiency-oriented and thoroughly capitalist framework that he approached the entire economy, in this case specifically seeking to expand and bring down the cost of housing by streamlining production through the standardization of construction materials and building codes. Concretely, what impact did Hoover's policies, with, with all their severe ideological limitations, what impact did they have on the industry, and both in the lead-up to the Depression and after it hit? Because you write, quote, by the end of the decade, even the traditionally conservative professional housers who staffed big city housing improvement associations were losing faith in pure private sector solutions. And even Hoover's Secretary of the Interior, Ray Lindman Wilbur, 
ominously warned that if the free market didn't figure out the housing problem, quote, housing by public authority is inevitable. Why had things gotten to that point, and what did Hoover do about it? To, to give Hoover credit, that Hoover's ideas about uh, standardization were made an, a very positive difference. But that difference uh, wouldn't really show up until mass building started uh, after World War II. The kinds of impact that this more technocratic orientation had couldn't overpower the core problem in the 1920s, which only became more severe as the uh, economy started um, disintegrating. The, The product was just simply too expensive and there wasn't there wasn't a market for it. He not only uh, Hoover eventually by the uh, summer before uh, the election campaign, Hoover tried to stimulate building by a program through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that originally just lent money to to banks and railroads. He allowed it to set up a, a, a small program to, to loan money to builders who would build it on a low-profit basis. But even that, I mean, there, there, there wasn't any enthusiasm among investors for, for this kind of option. The fact that the market was glutted, the, the market for the kind of product that the private market could supply was gutted by the middle of the 20s. Housing was just simply too expensive for people's incomes to, uh, to afford. Uh, and so there was no way he could kickstart the market back into the kind of uh, frenzy in residential real estate that it had been in in the 20s. The star of your book is a remarkable woman named Catherine Bauer, who in 1934 published the book Modern Housing and then later on went to found an organization, went to later on went to lead an organization called the Labor Housing Conference, something that we'll get into a lot more later on. To start, though, who was Bauer? How did she develop her interest in housing? And what did she mean by modern housing? What did she propose in terms of the economics of home building, the government role in home building, the design of homes, and how a family's home would be embedded in larger developments, communities, cities, and and really in entire metropolitan areas? Well, Catherine Bauer uh, started out as a person who was uh, very interested in art and architecture and culture. And she 
uh, as a as a very young woman, uh, just out of uh, college, she went to Paris. She sort of took in these various uh, streams of modern art and culture, and as time went by, she she became involved with. Uh, Americans and Europeans who were part of the, who were interested in the housing question. And partially by just accident, she ended up being part of a study group of um, architects and urban planners in the United States who were influenced by the European uh, housing movement, and people involved, the architects involved, were very much uh, concerned uh, with creating a more egalitarian way of living. And and Bauer, she traveled through Europe. She met a, a number of of the leading architects in the nineteen twenties. There were a lot of cities throughout Europe that were funding housing. And this was the, the kinds of commissions that were available to architects. Designing rich country houses was the rich weren't as rich in Europe after the First World War. And so these housing opportunities were where the action was. And so the leading architects of the time who we associate with international style uh, modernism were very excited about these commissions that were available to them where they could uh, build on a large scale and also use, try out, some new materials and techniques uh, to bring bring costs down. And Bauer was taken with all of this. She did, she, she wrote about it and spent a lot of time with, with Americans who were interested in implementing some of these ideas here in the United States. And that's the the basis of her book, Modern Housing. And by, by modern, she didn't mean modern in the sense of mar- modern architecture necessarily. She meant up to date. She meant with the kinds of amenities and possibilities that the new kinds of building could, could um could bring, as you say, she is the the heroine of my my book, uh, and and so that's where I pick up my title that was her, modern housing for America, um, her vision. One of the, one of her skills was that she was able to move in a lot of different circles, and integrate a lot of ideas. And so her book and kind of synthesize a, a lot of these 
ideas that were cursing around through the United internationally at this time. She was able to kind of package them in a way that made them more legible and um, understandable to uh, a fairly wide audience at the time. But as time went by, she changed. She, uh, she was no longer a kind of art dilettante, but, and she was no longer just focused on design questions the way she had been when she kind of got started on, on her life trajectory, but rather she started understanding that in order to put some of these ideas into practice, the, uh, there had to be a political movement, and one had to attend to kind of financial dimensions that she initially in her life was not really concerned with. She was more art for art's sake kind of a, kind of a person. But in order to bring, to have a chance to bring any of her ideas and those of her compatriots into, into reality, she felt that she had to get involved politically as well um, and not just put forward uh, these technical plans or even, you know, artistic visions. And, and her coming into her own politically also really marked her moving out of the shadow and away from her lover, Lewis Mumford. Yes, they had. Mumford was very important uh, in her life. She met him by chance. She was uh, working at a publishing house, just a clerical job, I think. But where were the house that was publishing his work? And they had an affair. He was married, and but uh, they had an affair that went on for several years. And she was a wonderful, he found her a, a, a wonderful intellectual companion, uh, as well as romantic partner. And on her side, she learned an enormous amount from him. But after a while, his kind of ivory tower attitude where just published books and hope things would happen, kind of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is hard on those that's who write books, but 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 it wasn't just that. It was that he felt that, according to her, that society was just moving in a kind of progressive direction, and that the the hopes for. Uh, a more rational, just society would kind of just emerge. That there was some sort of an, an innate embryonic communism that modern society would just sort of produce. Yes, very well put. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And about the about the same time that she she was having real. Uh, questions about this and feeling that he, uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't really responding to the moment. Uh, she also felt he wasn't responding to the moment when he had to make a choice between her and his wife. 
And his attitude was he didn't need to because it was fine with him if everything just continued as it was. Uh, but she was she became restless and became became involved with people who had a more political orientation. And I think that the the key person here was uh, an architect named Oscar Stoneroff, who had been who was uh, had a European background. Um, and came to the United States with aspirations to be uh, a kind of Ernst Mai for the United States. Mai was a city planner for uh, the city of Frankfurt in the 1920s, and he had designed a lot of the housing that was built in Frankfurt, very terrific, still still standing wonderful examples of the kind of uh, the kind of thing I was talking about earlier where the um, the architects were able to get big commissions to to build in large-scale ways in Europe in the 20s so Stoneroff uh, was he was very much more of an activist as well as an uh, an architect uh, designer type person and Along, he, along with, he was connected with the American labor movement. And Bauer believed, came to believe, uh, that the only way that new housing possibilities were going to happen, the kinds that she was looking for in the United States, was for... Uh, organized groups of people who wanted house good housing for themselves and affordable housing for themselves. They had to demand this politically. As you touched on a bit, the rise of social housing in European cities was a key reference point for Bauer and for others in her milieu. Why, after World War I, did so many European countries embark on these on these projects of, of building out a massive amount of non-commercial housing. What factors from intense working class militancy to theoretical currents like utopian modernism led to that happening? And what did Bauer and her cohort learn from places like Red Vienna? Let's start with uh, Red Vienna, which is uh, still a, an international showcase for social housing. There was a housing crisis in Vienna after the First World War. It wasn't caused by the war, though. Uh, there had been severe uh, housing shortages and just unaffordable costs before the war. But the war made everything worse. After the war, Vienna uh, was the capital of a, a small state, whereas before uh, it had been the um, the center of the Austrian of this huge empire, there was unrest throughout Europe, and even uh, revolution. Uh, what became the Soviet Union and what it, in Russia, and the bourgeoisie was uh, very frightened about the possibilities of basically being expropriated. And the, the strongest uh, party in Vienna 
uh, was the Social Democrats. And the Social Democrats were more than tolerated by the, the conservative establishment because at that moment, things looked reasonably dicey for them. And the Social Democrats that, that took over the city council, they were very oriented toward more egalitarian world and, and housing seemed to them to be just a very critical good that, that, they, that they needed to try and provide for their constituency. And there was a lot of energy from the bottom to have better housing options. But one of the features that made their housing program possible was the fact that the industrial elite believed that that the social democrats were their best bet of kind of protecting themselves against some kind of revolutionary event and because of that they were they were willing to allow the social democrats to basically to institute these very draconian taxes on property. Essentially, they, they, they cut loose the property-owning part of capital. And uh, there were, so the Social Democrats were able to institute this program based on the revenues that they got by very high taxes that they put on, they put on property owners, essentially, through through taxing the rents that um, that were charged, and by the end of they they started building in something like 1923. Well, 1923, and they continued for a decade. Uh, by the end, uh, they had uh, rehoused 10% of the population. It was it was phenomenal. One of the particularly interesting parts, I to me, was how they, they didn't contract with for-profit builders, uh, but instead uh, it was directly financed by the government, but also the government became the contractor. But also the city government set up firms that would create materials, cement, um, lumber for flooring, and so so that the the programs that were put in place, which in a, in the United States would um, would then hire private operators to carry out these programs, were all kind of kept in house, and therefore they didn't. Um, the government wasn't uh, helping. The, the real estate industry uh, become a stronger, more powerful within the within the within the politics and and, and because they they weren't supported by the, by by the government. So was in in a way a kind of the most extreme example of the kind of 
of, of the of the social housing movement in Europe at this time. But there were there was large scale building in Germany and and other countries as well. One other key factor that you mentioned, one that that you that you write that Bauer failed to account for, was the fact that the real estate industry was a less powerful force period in European capitalism than it was in the United States, something that made non-real estate capitalists in Europe much more willing to support decommodified housing. Right. And partially because it helped them. And that's a piece that I, 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 should, I should talk about. For the industrial, for industrial capital in Vienna, the important thing for them was keeping wages low. And part of that had to do with keeping housing prices, uh, housing rents low. So that's one of the reasons that they were uh, willing to put up with what was really a, you know, a major blow to capital being in charge of things. They were, they were willing, as I said, to cut loose uh, the property owners in order to save themselves. And those groups weren't as tightly integrated as they are, as they have been historically in the United States. I mean, here in the United States, real estate speculation is, it's, it's just, it's part of everything. So it's, it's not a, such a kind of distinct feature. And it's also incredibly powerful Every congressional district has boards of realtors, has developers that are organized in groups and and at the national level as well, industrialists who basically manufacturers, they're still involved with, with real estate. I mean, these days, institutions of higher learning are real estate operators, hospitals are real estate operators. I mean, it's so connected and so politically powerful. I mean, you know, we just finished with our, the developer uh, president, uh, but, you know, George Washington was out there with his little whatever laying out property as well. So, And George Washington had, had interest in property across the proclamation line of 1763, which was the king's limits upon where white settlement was supposed to stop. <laughs> and Washington had an interest in overthrowing the king of England so that the American settlers could push forward and dispossess America and dispossess indigenous people of their land, land that he already had a direct interest in. <laughs> from um, take us from Washington to, to Trump <laughs> speculation nation and Trump's grandfather I think it was Trump's grandfather great grandfather I mean the speculate the, the land speculation property speculation in the Trump family goes way back <laughs> <laughs> indeed yes the Great Depression wreaked havoc on the housing industry bringing construction to a halt and causing foreclosures to skyrocket which was both a signal of the general crisis and also a major sectoral motor of that crisis at a macroeconomic level. And so one of the first legislative victories of the New Deal, maybe the first, I don't recall, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, 
created the Housing Division, part of the Public Works Administration, marking the first non-wartime direct federal intervention ever into the housing market. What was the Housing Division? Who led it? And what factors made it, as you write, quote, significantly influenced by those who hoped to initiate a single broad policy approach aimed at the majority of Americans? The When the National Industrial Recovery Act was passed, part of it was, part of the money was put into a, a, a public works agency that was headed up by a man named Harold Ickes, the head of the Department of the Interior. Uh, he had been a he started out as a progressive, uh, reform-minded Republican in Chicago, and he'd been involved with um, Chicago politics for many years, which is very corrupt, very rough and tumble. And Ickes uh, came out of that experience, um, along with maybe just his uh, innate character, he was. Uh, he had a few rough edges. Yes, he was quite rigid. <laughs> quite, quite rigid. Um, I have, I have a, a soft spot for him. He, um, he was a an anti racist, and uh, he was very incorruptible personally. People who worked with him uh, found him difficult, uh, partially because. He was so controlling and um, and focused on little, you know, everything had to come o- come over his desk, and um, this was very frustrating for uh, many of the people who worked with him. But in his defense, he was really set on uh, not having scandals break out that would undermine the. Uh, political strength of the New Deal and dealing with anything having to do with real estate is always very vulnerable uh, to self-dealing and corruption and so forth and money just slipping through the cracks. Yeah, I think Senator Albert Albert Fall, who I quoted earlier as uh, warning that Federal housing was a, quote, insidious, concerted effort to overthrow, overturn the entire government of the United States that he had gotten caught up in the Teapot Dome scandal. Yes, which had to do with real estate. And uh, people like Ickes were very, um, the Teapot Dome scandal was was uh, was huge, a very influential one on on people like like Ickes thinking, so but that was that was the the basic stru- structure. The 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 Public Works Administration uh, did a lot of big projects, dams and electrifying railroads and so forth. But um, but it Ickes um, segmented off a piece of it that would be the housing division, and. For that operation, he hired design professionals and public and uh, urban planners who had been influenced by these kinds of ideas that we've been talking about that were tried out, that were developed in Britain after World War I, 
their, their garden cities, uh, also the international mass housing movement that was happening, people who had been involved with the communities that were built, the neighborhoods that were built during the First World War. So these ideas about design were just kind of cursing through this world of architecture and urban planning. So it was only, only reasonable that many of these design ideas were tried out by the Public Works Administration. Just to give you a concrete sense of what I'm talking about, one of the, the very nicest of the Public Works Administration projects was uh, built in Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland Terrace. And I was lucky enough to be able to have a conversation with um, the architect, the lead architect on that project, years later, obviously. And uh, his name was Wallace Tier, and just a really lovely person. And I asked him, you know, um, if he was uh, aware of these these kinds of building projects that were going on in Europe. And he said, oh, yes. He said, you know, like a lot of uh, architects in that period, I had these designs that I, that I would wanted to try out, and I kept them in a drawer because I couldn't get any, because there were no commissions to be had in the 1920s for large-scale projects. So where I'm going with this is that Tier was, he was part of a national group of people who were aware of what was going on but had no way of, of, of putting any of it into action until the housing division starts making it possible to build projects throughout the country, eventually, eventually around 50. Um, and so these, these designers, they, they were part of this conversation that Catherine Bauer was so seminal in developing. The 1932 election not only elevated Roosevelt to the presidency, but also elected a Congress within which you write, quote, non-Southern Democrats represented a working majority in the House for the first time of what would only be of what would be only a few times in the 20th century. And you write that FDR and the New Deal liberal Democrats that they envisioned housing policy as a as a way to give people stable, affordable homes, to revive the economy, and to make their base into a constituency that would underpin a permanent Democratic majority. What were the various ways that these people envisioned housing policy simultaneously accomplishing these three goals? What was the state of the debate over what to do about housing within the New Deal coalition? You ask about the ideas of the the people at the center of the New Deal. At, At the point Roosevelt, the Roosevelt administration comes in, in the spring of 1933. The home foreclosures were running at uh, a thousand a day. 
and the financial industry uh, that was involved with mortgages was on the verge of collapse. So it it wasn't surprising that one of the that the very first things that the administration did was to set up a temporary program called the Homeowners Loan Corporation or HOLC. And the HOLC uh, refinanced something like a million home mortgages. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who who wrote about the New Deal, credits the HOLC with being uh, one of the major elements that brought the uh, the middle class behind the New Deal. So this was uh, such an emergency. It it wasn't surprising that the first uh, the first thing that the administration did was to try and stabilize the situation. It didn't, uh, and, and it was successful at that, uh, the program, but it didn't do anything to revivify the commercial housing market. And since residential housing, along with automobiles, were the major drivers of the, those two were the key drivers of the economy in the 1920s. It's, it's really not surprising that people like Roosevelt, their first thought was, we need to get the commercial market working again. Roosevelt, it, it's, it's sometimes not appreciated how much of a fiscal conservative he was. Many of the people around him might have been more amenable to uh, a directly financed program of home building. But Roosevelt was very interested setting up programs that didn't show up on the budget, that, that worked indirectly. And the FHA... The Federal Housing Administration. Which was set in motion very early, was very effective at doing just that. And and I don't think that, you know, in terms of what the administration wanted, uh, Roosevelt was, the idea of instituting the modern housing program uh, just would not have made sense to him, I think. All, and he wasn't that gung-ho, public works administration, but he uh, very much relied on Ickes, very much trusted him, very much wanted to keep him happy, and he was willing to go along, but he he never visited the projects particularly. I think he, he went to the one that was built in Georgia, but but that was really the only one he ever visited. This uh, housing wasn't a a major issue. He had he had very conventional ideas about housing, and in in many ways not that different from from Hoover. One other key piece of of that early New Deal political context, I think, that you highlight is that the housing division was able to get off the ground in the way that it was in significant part because 
the real estate capitalists who had always opposed public housing were back on their heels and were in no shape economically and thus politically to challenge it. One of the things that happened, though, as a result of reforms that were made in the 1930s, uh, the, the reforms and rescue programs, HOLC, FHA, uh, Fannie Mae, those programs stabilized the real estate industry. And by the end of the 30s, it started picking up steam. So the government actually built up the political power of this sector uh, through through these, these programs and meant that although the PWA didn't run into uh, such strong headwinds, by the time we get to the later 30s uh, and uh, a program for American style, what, what we call public housing, was proposed, by this time, the real estate industry had been revivified to the point that uh, there were there was in a lot of opposition and uh, and it became it beca- it um, it had a big impact on creating a a very constrained program in 1933 the american federation of hosiery workers immediately jumped at the housing division's offer of loans to build affordable housing and went on to construct this development in northeast philly called the Mackley Homes, a project that we'll talk about more in a moment. But first, how did these Philadelphia labor radicals get turned on to the idea of social housing? And in what made unions like the hosiery workers and also the New York-based Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, a much larger union, what made them so interested in exploring not only what unions could do for workers in the workplace, but also this much broader vision in terms of challenging capitalist control over the economy and and the organization of everyday life and, and consumption. Yeah, partially because they too were were influenced by European mass housing movement and and knew about it and had traveled to Europe and seen uh, some of these developments and like Catherine Bauer was they were quite entranced and yeah. talked it up to people. As Mackley houses, even before the uh, they got interested in the housing question, they were they were part of a of a of a movement uh, that people refer to as new unionism. And the hosiery workers were were very much influenced by the amalgamated clothing workers, who were much bigger uh, union. But the idea that through cooperative enterprises, significantly, that um, ordinary people would have more of their lives could be shielded from the market. Um, These kinds of ideas that we might call social democratic, they were just uh, part of of the conversation in, in, in... uh, left union circles at that time, particularly Jewish left labor circles. I, I, although 
the hosiery workers weren't um, the rank and file weren't uh, particularly Jewish, as I understand it. Uh, but uh, a number of the people who worked for them were. So one of the things that I was struck by when I was doing my research was how much discussion that there was amongst left-leaning people uh, throughout uh, the United States, throughout, throughout Europe, about ideas. Uh, it, it, there were these conversations going on that um, cosmopolitan, sophisticated people in the labor movement and outside were part of. Out of the Hosiery Workers Union came the Labor Housing Conference. And the idea was to make projects like the Mackley Houses, which we have not really discussed in detail yet, but we'll get to, to make projects like the Mackley Houses part of an amply funded, large-scale, nationwide social housing program, something larger and more permanent than the housing division. Bauer took up the leadership of the organization and she immediately set about converting organized labor to its agenda, which which was no small task, despite these these left labor currents that we've been discussing. The AFL had declared in 1932 that government-sponsored housing was against American, quote, ideals of individual initiatives and rights. What was the Labor Housing Conference, and, and how did they bring labor over to their vision? And then what, what role did they envision unions having, in particular, in an American social housing system? So the Labor Housing Conference was a really marginal operation uh, consisting of, of uh, Bauer, and Stoneroff and some allies in the, the labor movement. And basically they, uh, the, the challenge as, as you indicate was that a lot of American labor was really ex- uh, quite, was really quite conservative. And it, it wasn't, it didn't consist of many social unions like the hosiery workers. But as the housing and building crisis mounted, people in the traditionally very conservative construction segment of the labor movement, they become um, more amenable to hearing uh, ideas about government-funded construction projects. And so it was partially that uh, Bauer and, and Stoneroff and, and so forth could, uh, w- were able to make that, those kinds of arguments to the more conservative blocks in the labor movement that helped them kind of break through their uh, tendency to to not want, uh, to not welcome uh, government programs. If it had, if they had had more time before the before World War II, before the programs, the pro-commercial housing programs of the New Deal had taken hold, it's possible that 
the the backing of the labor movement, which grew over time, might have it, it might have been able to push things more in a direction of the kind of the the modern housing conception for policy. The window of opportunity closed. Now, what were the hopes of the modern housers when it came to labor? Well, one of the one of their hopes was that federal policy would make it possible for organized groups in civil society, mainly labor unions, but also cooperatives of, of other types, but labor unions being, an, being, all, being already there and, um, and, throughout, and existing throughout the country. They, people like Bauer, imagined that they could come to a, a federal housing agency and get low-cost capital to build uh, non-commercial projects of the kind that they wanted in the, in the kind of place that, that they lived, uh, that they would have a lot of input into the design and would be able to be this kind of active, local, kind of grassroots energy that would connect with a, a nationally coord, coordinated program. And so for them, the, just the obvious seedbed for this was the labor movement. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Social Democracy, Working Class Politics Across the Russian Empire, 1882 to 1917 by Eric Blanc. Through extensive archival research in eight different languages, revolutionary social democracy introduces readers to the politics and practices of socialists in Tsarist Russia's imperial borderlands. These parties fought for democracy and workers' power across the entire span of the Russian Empire, from the factories of Warsaw to the oil fields of Baku, to the autonomous parliament of Finland. Eric Blanc's incisive study of these parties shows that the Russian Revolution was far less Russian than is commonly assumed. The implications of this discovery challenge long-held assumptions about the dynamics of revolutionary change under both autocratic and democratic conditions. Revolutionary Social Democracy by Eric Blanc out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. You write, quote, that some moderate-income people not only found PWA housing appealing, but were allowed to move in, points to one of the best features of the PWA program in its first years. It was not means-tested. That changed in 1936, and then 
with the 1937 Housing Act, something we'll talk about a lot more later, with the 1937 Housing Act, means testing became enshrined in the American public housing system as something really fundamental to it. And I think it's really hard for many people today to understand why the government should be building housing for people who are not poor, though building housing for the majority is precisely what social housing is all about. Why did the Labor Housing Conference see public housing becoming a relatively universal program as so crucial? What was their vision of the place for state-built or state-funded or state-coordinated non-commercial housing in the larger housing market? To respond to your first question, why did they see it as so important? I think we can just go back to the old social work saying, which is that policies that are aimed specifically at poor people end up poor policies. And that's because the poor by themselves are not a powerful constituency. And they can't, they don't have the political weight uh, to get things for themselves by themselves. Evidence for this, not that not that people in the 1930s and 1920s had it, uh, but, but we, we have it in very stark form, uh, given the uh, situation in the 1980s when the Reagan administration came, came into power. The people around Ronald Reagan were uh, very set on cutting all the social programs back. And, um, and there was pushback across the board uh, for a number of these that um, funding was restored in very many areas. But the, the place that the, that the extreme cutbacks happened, like 80 and 90% of federal funding was withdrawn from housing programs public housing, housing vouchers, etc. And that's just a you know, that's just a concrete piece of evidence for how vulnerable uh, housing programs that are just for poor people are. Now, on the other hand, programs that cover the majority of people in this country, what policy scholars call uni- universalistic programs, they have a lot of resilience politically. Uh, the poster child for this being uh, Social Security, which was established in the 1930s. And although it comes under pressure, it continues as uh, the, the third rail of American politics that it's, it's, not, it's, it's not easily cut back or gotten rid of as much as as much as the right would like to do that. So so their concept was uh, partially based on an idea of creating a powerful political constituency which would maintain this program over time. But it also had to do 
with their vision of uh, better patterns of urban growth. And they wanted to replace this kind of incremental, speculative, sprawl, low-density, formless kind of building pattern that was starting to take shape with large-scale, comprehensively planned urban regions with walkable neighborhoods. And they felt that 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 would, that would actually be not just a cheaper way to build, but it would be a more supportive and satisfying context for people's lives. And that the middle part of the market, really, I, I think in their minds, really everyone except the, the, the very wealthy, unsociable, <laughs> rich who wanted to um, retreat to their own estates. But everyone else uh, would be benefited by, um, by, this, by this, different, this different physical environment. So it wasn't just it wasn't just the politics of it, but it was also the reality that they thought would be a better uh, a better pattern of of growth. Right. Yeah. It, it was also about some really fundamental stuff about what everyday life and subjectivity in in the country would be like. For the Hosiery Workers Union and and for the Labor Housing Conference, you write quote the real problem with private ownership was that it seemed to reinforce the privatism that characterized U.S. political culture. And on the one hand, this bought into a certain design determinism, you write, that something that was very pervasive from the progressive era on. And, and it also ran up against the reality that what American workers seemed to want was to live in miniature versions of mansions, something that Bauer was very aware of. She was very interested, for example, in the international style, but thought that it clashed with Americans who were confronting modernity in modern industrial capitalism and wanting to retreat back into different, more comforting, pre-modern sorts of design forms. But they were right that American political culture was and would be fundamentally defined by the organization of American housing from from the ground up. What was their vision for a new housing system leading to the creation of new social realities and new forms of political consciousness? Because, and we'll get into this more later, the dominant New Deal housing framework achieved through support for the private mortgage market vis-a-vis the Federal Housing Administration, that ends up creating very different sort of political subjectivity, a political subjectivity that rather than guaranteeing a permanent democratic majority, which was FDR's aim, lays the groundwork for quite the opposite. What sort of political subjectivity and forms of sociality did the labor housing conference see a social housing system helping to facilitate? I think in their emphasis on the design of neighborhoods, as opposed to trying to include everything within an individual structure of a one house. And of a nuclear family. Yes. 
their plan was designed neighborhoods where um, there were social facilities, places for places for people to meet in formal and informal ways that that depended on um, in these more compact residential areas, people could walk to things rather than using automobiles all the time. And so there would be more more contact between people. In terms of the the, the vision of the hosiery workers uh, specifically, um, the, the the housing project that they sponsored, the Carl Mackley houses, probably the most the 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 part of it that integrated people and got them working together and um, getting to know each other uh, across people who didn't necessarily come in um, connected with anybody else. It was the, the nursery school. And the nursery school was extremely, extremely well run. It, uh, people from outside the complex brought their, brought their children, some professional people. But, and it was a place where people um, volunteered to help, uh, mothers did. But also, it was a place that uh, the the residents got together to support. It never, it it always, it was never, it, it never really ran on its own in a in an easy way uh, financially. And so the mothers would get together and have rummage sales and bake sales and various kinds of. Uh, entertainments to make money for the for the nursery school and in a way it's I mean at, at first it sounds kind of laborious uh, keeping this thing afloat but in fact um, everybody who was connected to it said that it was the best thing about the complex because um, it meant that they they got to meet other families and it you know, created these bonds. So, you know, in terms of that vision of sociability that you were mentioning before and asking about, I, I think that the the nursery school represents that uh, really well uh, in the in the hosiery workers uh, housing project. The socialization of socially reproductive labor. Yeah, exactly. And but it just it it happened, it happened kind of organically. It wasn't forced on people. Yeah, it was intended. There, it was intended to be the the Mackley houses, which opened in 1935, were really intended to foster a certain sort of community and even left wing political life. But it seems that mostly, with the exception of the strong exception of the nursery, that most residents just thought the development. Thought the development was a nice place to to live, not not a utopian experiment. Right, you know. In retrospect, there might have been more things that the union leadership uh, might have done to to communicate 
these ideas to people, but they they didn't have the the capacity to do that at the time. They were under they were under terrific pressure in other areas and didn't didn't have extra people to deploy to do uh, to to do educational outreach and and I think that this was one of the things that that Bauer was was concerned about in terms of publicizing these ideas so that people started asking for them asking for a new kind of housing and would move into new kinds of housing already excited about the possibilities that this would that, that, that this would offer people but there wasn't a knowledge of these kinds of of alternatives that that was around in the United States at this moment. And you just mentioned that the hosiery workers might have been able to more intensively program and support different sorts of community life within the Mackley houses, but they were under such incredible stress being a militant union in a rapidly declining industry. And indeed, the the very economic realities of constructing the Mackley houses with PWA support made it that it was too expensive for hosiery workers to rent. Yes, which was a big disappointment. But it does point to the fact that it was possible to build housing for the middle and have people, even uh, even professional people, school teachers, move into this situation because they they could see all the opportunities that were there the the swimming pool the the meeting room Balc- balconies yes it it was expensive but more expensive than they wanted but part of that was that they they weren't they weren't given capital as as cheaply as the federal government could have done and they had the the uh, place been subsidized a little more at the beginning in terms of capital costs, the rents could have been kept a lot lower. Or they could have had a more diverse mix of rents so that at least some substantial portion of the units were, were renting at a lower level. Yes, right. We're not at 1937 yet at the point where the PWA's housing division temporary program is supplanted by the Housing Act's permanent public housing program. But what was it during the life of the housing division that so circumscribed its scope and scale so that not only were there not more Mackley houses, but that the Mackley houses could not be as affordable as they needed to be to accomplish their mission? Okay, so I I think there's like, Two parts, um, uh, two issues that I that um, speak to this question. One is that Ickes, Harold Ickes, who was in charge, he was interested in creating a corporate subsidiary, we would call today an, an authority structure, that was legally independent of the government agency. 
uh, the, the P, that is the PWA and could function flexibly in the market. And uh, Roosevelt backed him and even committed a hundred, something like a hundred million dollars to, uh, fi- to uh, capitalize uh, this, this mechanism that Ickes wanted. But unfortunately for this idea, the controller of the treasury, uh, he was a, an appointee of Hoover's and there was no way to remove him until his term ended. And he refused to transfer the money. So uh, Ickes was, had to, he had to work through the um, vehicle of the housing division, which was much more kind of clunky and slowed everything down. Added to that, he faced the problem of uh, trying to put together places to build. And uh, here is one area where the direction of, of his conception of the best direction to go uh, really diverged from the the modern housing proponents. This is the question of slum clearance versus greenfield development. Yes, exactly. And whatever the the abstract merits of greenfield development were, which he might have even uh, agreed with, uh, he felt that politically, to keep support coming, uh, for some, especially for something as radical as direct federal intervention into the housing market to produce housing, he felt he had to respond to all the people who uh, thought that's, that, that they should be doing slum clearance. But the problem with that was that slum property tended to be, it was all divided up between many owners, some of whom had died decades before and um, organizations that had ceased to exist and putting together and um, managing to buy up uh, property uh, so that there'd be large areas for construction. It was a nightmare. Uh, toward the end, the only thing to, to finish off the job would be to uh, condemn land to, to, to use eminent domain. But this path was blocked as well because the courts wouldn't, wouldn't go along with it. And when, the federal, when two layers of the federal courts ruled against him, the only option he had was to go to the Supreme Court. But it was quite conservative still at this point. And Roosevelt was afraid that a major ruling against this would also threaten some of his other programs. So Ickes, at that point, was stuck with the, um, with the option of, of getting local organizations, housing authorities, to getting communities to set those up and they would be able to condemn property. And the courts, courts went along with that. But that meant he, 
in terms of your question about why more didn't happen, all of this took a lot of time, and it meant that Ickes couldn't initiate. He had to just wait. And, of course, we know that from where we are in history, looking back, many, many parts of the many communities never organized a housing authority, never asked for help setting up low-cost housing, uh, low-rent housing for uh, the poor people in their area. They kept them out in the first place uh, by zoning rules, or they um, or they ignored them. And so that meant that uh, everything went very slowly. Places that did have housing authorities, they were often uh, dominated by local businessmen, many of whom were real estate speculators themselves. And even though there wasn't any building happening to to any any extent anyway, during the 1930s, they had their eye, they had their eyes on the edge of uh, growth, the the greenfields that you talked about, and thought that that they wanted to keep those available for themselves when the market picked up. And so they, too, emphasized slum clearance over uh, greenfield development, uh, the, the local housing authorities. Which is interesting given that American public housing soon thereafter becomes fundamentally intertwined with slum clearance throughout much of the 20th century. Yes, uh, and uh, real estate owners liked this uh, because it meant that areas were cleaned up at uh, taxpayer expense and uh, private developers, their properties uh, gained value or else they got this cleaned up area themselves to, to, to build on. And, and it also meant that the, those people who owned sort of rundown apartment uh, buildings in the city center, they didn't, the, the rule was that all of the, for every new unit that was, for every unit that was destroyed, a new unit could be built, but the, the total amount of housing wouldn't increase and so they they wouldn't be threatened by 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 losing renters in this in there there wouldn't be there wouldn't be increased options for for renters that would bring down the the rents of the slumlords for much of the 20th century we thought of public housing as federally funded but built and run by local public housing authorities then since the destruction of public housing commenced in arguably the 1980s we have thoughts not so much about public housing, though though plenty still exists, but more so where the growth has been about affordable housing, built in large part by nonprofit community development corporations using federal tax credits, LIHTC. Back in the mid-1930s, what forms of centralization and decentralization between various forms of government and nonprofit entities and labor unions did, did Bauer and the Labor Housing Conference envision? And what role then would the resulting system, what we might call a social housing system, what role might that have played within the larger entirety of the U.S. housing market? 
So I think that Bauer and her colleagues and the people in the labor housing conference, they imagined that organized groups would have the ability to, would be able to, uh, to get support from federal programs to build housing that they envisioned as meeting their needs. And it wouldn't be a kind of cookie-cutter federal program, uh, one-size-fits-all. There would be a, a range of cooperatives, labor unions, and... And in, in some way, you might think that, well, this is like the, the CDCs of today, the community development corporations. But um, their vision was, not, was, was different than the CDCs in that they thought of these groups that would um, organize to get loans and technical assistance from the federal government, these would be people who would be living in the housing themselves and not just uh, nonprofit developers who were doing it for them. And so there'd be a a much more kind of democratic, grassroots flavor to the the program. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because in their vision, the federal government would have played a much larger role. But at the grassroots, the program would simultaneously be far less state-centric. Yes. And that was, um, and that was something that uh, Bauer tried to get written into the permanent legislation, but uh, wasn't, wasn't successful at, you know, it, it, it got it got X'd out before a final passage. Yeah, we sort of got the worst of the state and non-state roles possible in the end. (laughs) Yes, yes. The other major example of PWA housing in your book alongside the Mackley homes are the Harlem River houses built for black people specifically. And they were constructed by the housing division after they shifted from indirectly subsidizing groups like the hosiery workers building housing to directly developing housing. And it was a very nice project and is still considered to be so today. It's precisely in in many ways what we might have wanted out of a social housing system in America. Lots and lots of Harlem River houses. But before we get to the development itself, can you lay out a bit of the context of what led to it getting built? What what housing conditions prevailed at the time in Harlem? What sort of black militancy around housing emerged in response to those conditions? And why did other ventures fail to provide a solution? Okay, so Harlem is a quite fascinating uh, case of investor <laughs> investor uh, catastrophe they th- this part of uh, Manhattan Island seemed to uh, real estate investors uh, large and small 
in the early part of the 20th century to be uh, just perfect for luxury housing. And uh, they built a lot of it uh, only to find that the, the swarms of wealthy families that they had counted on didn't materialize. And because they were kind of left empty-handed, they were willing to offer, and they, were, and they were desperate for revenue, they were willing to offer housing to uh, black families in a way that most property owners weren't at the time. And, uh, af- and black people did uh, move into Harlem in great numbers. They, the housing that ha- had, was available wasn't, wasn't ideal because they couldn't, they couldn't support these very fancy apartments and brownstones that had been built. So the, the places were cut up into tiny pieces it, it kind of looked good if you were walking a- along the street. Like gorgeous brownstones. Yes, but they were, um, but people were crowded into them. And there was just a lot of suffering that wasn't, uh, that didn't meet the eye. So, um, so Harlem itself, it, it, was, it was at least a place that people could uh, find shelter, to, but they... But it wasn't, you know, to say it wasn't ideal. I mean, that's a great understatement. So housing, you know, there were, there were tremendous areas where black Americans were discriminated against. But the, the housing was one of the most extreme. And there were uh, tenants organizations uh, formed, ones that were led by more mainstream, professional, bourgeois, black professionals, but also uh, ones that were uh, influent in, um, connected with the Co- Communist Party. And these organizations, there was tension uh, among the more, between the more radical and the more conservative um, uh, branches, but they they spent a lot of time they educating people essentially, and they did a lot to promote grassroots militancy, and sponsored demonstrations and um, various events to publicize the idea that the 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 government needed to respond to the the terrible housing situation in Manhattan and specifically in Harlem. So, you know, just going back to what we talked about in terms of the Carl Mackley houses and how a lot of the people who came in were just, you know, this they, they did it on the basis that it just looked like a, a nice apartment and and they hadn't really educated about the uh, American housing problem in general. And, 
But in the 1930s in Harlem, this tenant organizing, it, it did the education and the socialization of a lot of people about how they just, there could be and they deserve to have better housing op- options. And I think that that's the fact that when Harlem River finally opened, the people that came in, they they were poor, but but they were they were fairly sophisticated about how housing how, how the government needed to relate to housing uh, from from their standpoint uh, with their interests in mind. But you ask about other th- ways uh, about the initial response by elites to the Harlem housing problem. And the, the one that's, that stands out the most from efforts by philanthropists and conservative elites from the late 19th century on to develop uh, housing that would be affordable to poor people without, without w- within the capitalist market system. The best single example of this was the the apartment houses, the Paul Lawrence Dunbar houses that were developed Rockefeller, not the senior Rockefeller who was the entrepreneur, but his son, who was a who loved art architecture and was the money behind uh, Williamsburg and Colonial Williamsburg restoring that and um, and uh, the the art uh, deco of uh, Radio City Music Hall and so forth in uh, in Manhattan uh, he got it into his head that he would build housing in Harlem and that would be entirely within the uh, the private sector. He hadn't made any of his fortune himself, but was very dedicated to proving that the private sector could solve the housing crisis. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's it's quite amazing. So so he um, he he would he would have been able to help finance the, this uh, apartment complex that he built. Uh, to draw on public money in the 1920s to spur um, home building, the state of New York had passed a law that meant that if you were a company that agreed to keep your profits down, you could and and just take a very low profit from from your project, you could get tax abatements. But um, Rockefeller, as you say, was very anxious to prove that uh, this could all be done without any government intervention whatsoever. He didn't take those. Um, and uh, he hired an architect, architect who designed a, a lovely building. And, of course, the, like this like usually happens, the ultimate cost was more than was imagined at the beginning, so the rents were higher than he had hoped for. But the the most affluent 
uh, black Americans who lived in Harlem, many of them moved in. And the place was uh, just terrific for a little while until the economy the economy crashed, and pretty soon uh, the the whole financial structure that Rockefeller had set up collapsed. But he had had hopes that this would be a great success and he would expand it. So just on spec, he had purchased a big area that was unbuilt in Harlem, not not too far from the apartments that he did build. And it was the fact that that land was sitting there at the point that the Public Works Housing Division was set up made black Harlemites, um, made them think that, that the government should do something to use that land productively and and create housing. And, and that's what I meant about people becoming conscious that there were alternatives and that they could live better if they had the support of government to supply them with high-quality housing and came in to Harlem River Houses uh, when it was opened with, with that sense in mind. So they had this vision that that never got created in, in Philadelphia. And as an aside, I think one key thing about creating mixed-income public developers today, even if at the beginning they don't have sufficient subsidy to build as much or as affordably as we would hope, is that just creating the capacity for the state to build housing for anyone creates the possibility of posing a political demand for housing to the state, which is currently not, there's a housing crisis right now, and it's currently not in people's popular vocabulary. It's not in the popular consciousness at present that the state is an entity upon which you could make a demand around housing. So people are pissed off, but they go to the state and say, we're upset about the housing crisis, and politicians say something, affordable housing, more construction, something, something. Or uh, we'll, we'll do something to get rid of the homeless people on the sidewalk that are upsetting you. Uh, we'll, we'll take them somewhere. Right. Because people are aware that the state has carceral and repressive institutions that it can unleash. So those demands are legible to people as they're plausible. The Harlem River Houses, again, were considered to be very nice at the time and are still considered to be so today. They also screened prospective tenants to ensure that applicants were nuclear families of, quote, good character, and project staff performed a weekly rent collection, weekly, that included every week an intrusive apartment, apartment inspection. In other words, it was an incredibly paternalistic setup. The The income requirements were also very specific, requiring people to be low income, but not so but not poor that they couldn't pay the rent. <laughs> and, and yet again, this project was and remains today, I believe, truly beloved by its residents. What, what various and maybe contradictory lessons should we learn from Harlem River? In terms of design, one of the one of the features that everybody uh, loved ab- about it was that it it was small enough 
uh, and low enough to be a, a real community. And f- it fit in with the neighborhood, even though uh, it, was, it was built as a super block, but it was open uh, in a way that, it was open to the street in a way that didn't seem to mark it off as um, as something different than New Yorkers were interested in. And, of course, all of uh, the New York public housing has been uh, more successful than uh, public housing most, most anywhere else, in, in, in any of the big cities where a lot of it was built. And a lot, part of that has to do with the fact that New Yorkers are used to living in apartments. But Harlem River, it was uh, four and five stories, and it had these interiors that were very attractive. Um, and, um, and also it had nearby playing fields for older children and uh, gatherings of various types. So it was just a, a physically appealing place to live. And it wasn't impersonal. People knew each other. Um, I talked to, I ta- I interviewed people who had lived there as children, and they talked about how they knew other parents, and they felt that there were always people who were looking out for them, looking after them, and and maybe ch- checking on them. So they, so they, they were actually quite positive about this. Okay, so other other lessons about Harlem River. One of the you point to the fact that that there was this very a, a kind of a thin group of people that who were not too too wealthy or or not too poor, and the fact that the New York Public Authority could find enough of these people who fit this very specific image points to the fact that there were thousands of black New Yorkers who who needed a place to live. But as time went by, there were pressures on uh, all the housing authorities in the country uh, to orient themselves uh, more toward the poor rather than rather than the working the very poor as opposed to the working poor. And, and some of these families, to be fair, uh, to, the, to the original residents who weren't all that, who actually weren't all that thrilled uh, about having people with, with no, no regular incomes move in, was that some of these, some of these families were troubled. They were, they were difficult neighbors. And this points to the various pressures that public authorities have been under over the years and and it's not um, we haven't been entirely honest about about a preference for the very poor what that means for the living conditions of more organized families as well as the income potential of the the housing authority because 
these folks can't pay rents uh, enough to uh, keep places operating and the federal government hasn't stepped in to really make up the difference at the same time as it's required the authorities to take more people who um, whose incomes are so low. Yep. And again, it's a, it's a context of scarcity, a scarcity that's the result of politics and the political balance of power and historical contingency that forces upon public housing authorities this trade-off between do you house this income or that income when the proposal put forward by Bauer and the Labor Housing Conference was house the vast array of incomes, everyone but the truly rich. Right. <laughs> yes. The PWA's housing division was temporary and, and as we've discussed, ran on a relatively small scale, much smaller than Bauer and the Labor Housing Conference would have would have liked to see. So throughout much of the 1930s, it remained a live question as to, quote, whether or how the federal government would support a national stock of non-commercial housing. That question was finally answered with the 1937 Wagner Public Housing Act, quote, at the time and ever since, viewed as a progressive measure, it could equally well be interpreted as an important break on the social democratic possibilities of the New Deal. And indeed, when put in the context of, of what the Labor Housing Conference was pushing for and what the housing division was exploring, it is pretty clear that the 1937 Act was indeed a serious break on social democratic possibilities of the possibility of actually having a true social housing system. But before we get to the legislation that was passed and the two-tier housing system that it enshrines in place, let's discuss the politics that led up to its passage. What were the political fights and coalitions and debates leading up to the 1937 Wagner Act? What was the balance of power between housing advocates ranging from the Labor Housing Conference on the left to the more mainstream National Public Housing Conference? And critically, where did a revived real estate industry fit into it all? Because as we discussed earlier, critical to getting the housing division off the ground was a political context within which a decimated real estate industry, a real estate industry that was decimated economically, was also weak politically and so unable to exercise meaningful political resistance to this historic public housing program launched by the PWA. But one consequence of the New Deal programs to resuscitate the private housing market, such as the FHA, was that those programs also resuscitated the private real estate industry's political power. So lay out that political context of the debates and fights leading up to the act. The thrust of uh, the of federal of federal uh, energy around housing had to do with reviving the private private industry. Housing was so important uh, for the whole economy, and it provided so uh, construction of all kinds, but uh, residential construction specifically, uh, employed so many people. So the original effort uh, was to stop the mass foreclosures and, and then to 
create better opportunities for finance than had exist than um, were available to people who wanted to, to build by this, and that's where the FHA stepped in with its kind of indirect program that meant that that the the federal government didn't 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 seem to be uh, the the main actor that it was. It seemed on the surface that the FHA, which was not making loans and not doing anything overtly, it it seemed like that was just the private sector healing itself. And as that healing took form, as as you say, this uh, private industry became more um, was starting to function again. Um, and became more confident. In fact, and then another piece of the puzzle was the the establishment of of uh, Fannie Mae, which set up a secondary market for mortgage lenders and made uh, financing more available. Cut interest rates for uh, potential borrowers. And these measures were so successful that for a while, until the end, it was never really clear that the federal government uh, was going to do anything else. These programs were not aimed at housing the poor. They were aimed at the private real estate market. And... They were successful at not only stabilizing it, but also expanding it. Because in the 1920s, middle-income people had a hard time affording housing. But after the kind of financial restructuring of the FHA and Fannie Mae took hold, they uh, individual families were able to tap capital markets themselves and get lower cost loans that meant that meant that they were laying out less money and the 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 market by the end of the 30s it was it was obvious that the private market was going to was was going to be in, in a way more successful than than it had been in in the 1920s. So there were there were people, as you say, uh, more radical people, like coming out of the labor housing conference with that vision, and more mainstream kind of philanthropic housing groups uh, that were concerned about the poor and felt some building had to happen for them of some kind, but. Uh, they were very in the in the mix. They weren't altogether. They weren't that that powerful. And the idea that there would be a a permanent program of federally subsidized housing was anathema to a lot of people who were connected with real estate, and they fought it tooth and nail. 
even the extremely limited, narrowly defined, underfunded one that ultimately passed. They they fought that tooth and nail. Yes, they did. And they they paired it to the bone as much as they could when the legislation went through Congress. And then after that, they attacked it. And, you know, to people like us, when we, when we think of how uh, unpopular uh, public housing has, has been over the course of our lifetimes, and we think, why were people in the, pri- in the, the private uh, industry, why, why did they worry about this for a second? This was no th- American public housing being a threat in some way. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. But this is, there's, uh, there's like two issues here. One is any model of government explicit support for production is threatening um, just because of the, of the example it sets. The other one is, in fact, a secret about public housing, just getting us beyond our uh, our images of Pruitt Igo being blown to smithereens. Public housing isn't as bad as has been made out. One uh, researcher made the point that everyone hates public housing, except for the people that live there and the people that are trying to live there. Which are waiting lists years and years long in many, many places. That's right. That's right. That's not to say that residents are happy with exactly how it's working. Um, They would like changes. They would like more funding. They would like better government. But overall, there's a surprisingly high rate of satisfaction that housing researchers have found when they've when they've surveyed um, people in public housing and all of public housing despite these stereotypes that we all have is not is not these bleak high-rises most of it is is garden apartments throughout the country and uh, it's 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 something we could build on rather than just turn our backs on it's something we could we could we should save and and appreciate and recapitalize us as much as we can how did the wagner act lead to the public housing system that that we ultimately got or at least the one that that we did have before it began to be dismantled in the 80s and 90s and then with hope 6 and the rise of section 8 and litec one one critical consequence is that the new public housing system that won out over social housing required that construction be done far more cheaply than it was under the housing division. And we already discussed that the housing division was underfunded for context. And so unlike Mackley or or Harlem River, quote, the housing produced under the Wagner Act usually looked unambiguously like poor people's housing, that it was in fact meant to be. Thus, passage of the Wagner Public Housing Act marked the institutionalization of a two-tier framework for federal intervention into the housing market. That upper tier, of course, being the invisibilized one of the FHA and Fannie Mae and the mortgage interest deduction, etc. But to be concrete, what were the consequences 
of the Wagner Act, both limiting public housing to the poorest and also severely limiting funding to that housing, both for the projects themselves and the, the physical environment and, and in a broader social and political sense. It lent these, these caps on, on spending that meant that the housing uh, tended to look different a lot of the time, especially uh, in, in the big cities, and also to, uh, to be placed in areas that private entrepreneurs weren't interested in. I think that's, uh, that aspect is, is underappreciated, that it wasn't just the, the, the buildings themselves, it was the fact that they were placed in areas that were run down and not connected well to the rest of the city. Um, the transportation options were poor and... Racially the, and economically segregated. Yes, and um, and so so there there was the physical situation of public housing, but also the the fact that it was it was directly funded made it more obvious what the government had to do with creating it and made it seem more expensive than it was because the costs, the, the, the supports that the government had given and it continues to give to private housing are indirect. And so they're invisible to most people. The mortgage interest deduction is just uh, one piece of this. But just to give you a sense of the scale of this, this one thing, the, the mortgage interest deduction, scholars call them tax expenditures. What, what we lost of our, of our public money through uh, the mortgage interest deduction. In 2018, the uh, federal government lost $85 billion. The direct costs for all of our housing programs for poor people cost $50 billion. So, and that's just one of the ways that, um, that we've subsidized the private housing market. And, and, and this is after, this is after the tax ref, quote unquote reforms or changes under Trump, which means uh, a lot less people are uh, itemizing than, than used to. So the disparity was much greater before the Trump tax cuts. And, uh, but, but, but it's just one of the ways that we've supported private housing. So in terms of this two-track system, that uh, one thing that distinguishes it is that the, the lower track is directly funded, the upper track is indirectly and indirectly funded, and seems to be free. It seems that the government is doing nothing. A major goal of FDR's housing agenda had been to create 
a materially grounded permanent constituency for the Democratic Party. But but as you write, quote, over time, the particular character of the New Deal housing settlement has played a major role in undermining a majority coalition in favor of activist government. Given that the mechanisms to reorganize the financial system used by the New Deal housing programs were largely invisible to the average person, many core Democratic constituencies came to believe that they were not receiving any public help. Meanwhile, these groups perceived themselves to be paying for programs to to benefit groups they regarded as less hardworking and deserving than themselves. As it worked out then, most Americans came to credit the market and their own efforts for the increase in living standards that occurred after the New Deal. And so FDR's intention was to create a material basis for a permanent New Deal majority, but instead he laid the material basis for Reagan Democrats, essentially, and everything that came thereafter. How did this two-tier American housing system so decisively shape the American 20th century? And perhaps if you can allow yourself the speculation, what sort of counterfactual history might we imagine having happened instead if the labor housing conferences model had won the fight? In terms of shaping uh, the politics, I think I think you've put it well in terms of how it it really uh, laid the basis for the Reagan Democrats and the the alienation of a lot of middle income people from the idea of activist government, which they started imagining to be only in support of poor people and racial minorities. But I think that in terms of the possibilities that might have been available had uh, the Labor Housing Conference and its allies been more successful, it seems possible that it that it could have, just in general, it, 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 it would have uh, laid the basis for a, a better life for a lot of Americans before we even get into their political consciousness. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California, which was an extraordinarily formless area around Los Angeles in the 1950s and 60s. And um, people would, would ask me, you know, where I was from. And I didn't really have a sense of being from any particular community because as you drove around, um, you just drove through more development that looked like what you'd just passed. And there was, there, things didn't seem to have any center or any, any edge and uh, it was just it was just uh, low density sprawl everywhere. There was no mass transportation to speak of. Things weren't. It was hard if you didn't. Everything, everything depended on having a car. And until one grew up to the point that uh, they could drive, and their, if their parents had enough money or would lend them the family car or buy them a car of their own. Um, it meant you couldn't get anywhere, um, even to the local public library easily. So I, I just, the kind of 
sprawl development that we had that uh, that where women particularly were isolated in their suburban homes. And, and all this brings out when I talk about urban design like this, that the vision of the Labor Housing Conference was not just houses. It was urban design more generally so that there were uh, more opportunities for the kind of for for sociability and 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 just general convenience if the um, the kinds of options that Bauer was hoping to get written in to the 37 act things like opportunities for for co-ops and labor unions to sponsor housing, um, uh, demonstration projects, so that more people could have seen some of these neighborhoods, um, and then imagine, and um, and then would have been able to ask more specifically for for something that they didn't even know existed. Uh, that this. Um, that that these opportunities that weren't that that were cut out of the act they would have led to they would have led to people uh thinking of the government uh, supporting them and maybe uh should be supporting them better <laughs> or um and and just and just communicated uh the idea that in which is true that the government is integrated throughout our whole housing system, that all of that would have been more obvious to people. Well, Gail Radford, thanks very much. Thank you. Gail Radford is professor of history emerita at the State University of New York at Buffalo and the author of two books, Modern Housing for America, Policy Struggles in the New Deal Era, and The Rise of the Public Authority, State Building and Economic Development in 20th Century America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, one part of society thus exacts tribute from another for the permission to inhabit the earth. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 